Our scripture text tonight comes from Colossians chapter 3, and then we'll read the answers together from Lord's Day 33 for a catechism lesson. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 10. We'll be focusing mostly on the second part of this passage. But Colossians 3, verses 1 through 10. Hear God's holy word as it is read to us. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. In page 45, in the back of our blue hymnal, is our... Catechism lesson tonight, Lord's Day 33. Let's read the answers uh, in unison. Question 88. What is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? Two things, the dying away of the old self and the coming to life of the new. What is the dying away of the old self? It is to be genuinely sorry for sin, to hate it more and more, and to run away from it. What is the coming to life of the new self? It is wholehearted joy in God through Christ, and a delight to do every kind of good as God wants us to. What do we do that is good? Only that which arises out of true faith conforms to God's law and is done for his glory, and not that which is based on what we think is right or on established human tradition. This morning I quoted a Methodist theologian, Stanley Hauerwas, and uh, said he's not the, the guy I normally go to, but he gave that wonderful quote, your, your life, or the only explanation for your life in the end must be God. Live your life in such a way that God is the only explanation for it. So every once in a while you can quote a Methodist. Um, tonight I go a little bit 
further off the, the well-worn path and I go to the world of pop music, uh, this past week I was uh, you know, doing some clicking around online, as I sometimes do, and there was a, a video that had surfaced uh, this pop star who was talking about how he had come to a renewed walk with the Lord. And uh, he had always considered himself a follower of Christ or a believer in Christ. But now um, things had changed a bit. So this is, uh, some of you may know his name. I never thought I would utter this name in the pulpit, but here we go. Uh, his name is Justin Bieber. And uh, he was, in this interview, he was saying that uh, always believed in Jesus, kind of understood, and if you've followed him over the years, you know he's had several relationships with pastors and been friends with uh, guys who are more in the megachurch scene. Uh, many of them I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise uh, availing yourselves of their teachings. But he said recently what he has come to realize is that uh, following Jesus is... Turning, uh, involves turning away from sin. If you want to live a life that honors God, that uh, speaks of the truth of what it is that Jesus does in our lives, there's a, a turning away from sin. And essentially what he did in, in, in I would say, fairly well-spoken categories, well-thought-out categories, is basically the doctrine in Lord's Day 33, a, a robust understanding of what we would call the third use of the law in Reformed thinking, that the law of God remains uh, in our lives as that which has authority over us. It guides us. And to those who have been given new life in Christ, in genuine conversion, there is this putting off of the old and the putting on of the new. And as we go to Scripture, what we find again and again and again is the emphasis on living a life that is marked by good works. Understanding all of that within the context of the gospel. That, of course, Jesus Christ is our righteousness. We can only stand before God as we trust in his work and we're clothed in that righteousness given to us in the gospel. Nevertheless, there is a life that is given to us by the Spirit. And that life of the Spirit is a life of uh, constantly putting off the old man and putting on the new and as we say elsewhere in the catechism, we need to struggle against sin our entire lives. So the, the, the first thing that we affirm tonight is really what we find in the last part of our Lord's Day lesson. The necessity for good works and defining what good works are. What are good works? Uh, what, what do they entail? Well, some may give the simple answer. Well, it's whatever is in accord with God's law. If it take any commandment, you know, do not murder. So you don't murder, you're obeying that commandment. The Lord's Day lesson tells us and shows us that there's actually more to it than that. There's more than just doing what is in accord with the law of God. First, for something to be a good work, it has to proceed from faith. There are two, two main things that I want us to think about when we think about good works proceeding from faith. Uh, the first thing is that we essentially need to believe that what we're doing is right. Uh, Paul in the New Testament is talking a lot about uh, issues of conscience. One of the big issues was meat that was sold in the marketplace. Oftentimes you would go into the marketplace and uh, you wouldn't know where that meat had come from or what the, 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 
person who's selling you the meat, where they had got it, if they had sacrificed it to an idol, oftentimes uh, that would happen. There would be meat that had been sacrificed to a false god, and then it's taken and sold in the marketplace. And Christians uh, struggled with this. They said, even if I, if I don't know whether or not it has been sacrificed in that way, even if I, if I take in the food not knowing, then is it a sin if it has been sacrificed to an idol? And Paul says, no, it's, it's not a sin. But, he says, it also comes down to a matter of conscience. That if a Christian were to take this food and were to believe that it is a sin to eat such meat and to nevertheless go ahead and eat it, that, in a sense, is a a sin. That is a sinful act because it carries with it the intention to sin even if the essence of a sinful act is not accompanied with it. So to go against our conscience is a sinful thing. God has given us our consciences they guide us, they inform us on what is, uh, what is right and what is wrong. Our consciences are not infallible, but nevertheless, if we are seeking to honor God, we need to uh, believe that what we are doing is right, that it's in accord with what he has commanded. A good work also must proceed from faith in the sense that all the things that we do are to come forth from faith in Christ, understanding that we can only live a life that is pleasing to God as we continue in faith. So that's trusting in Jesus Christ and trusting that the only way we can live a life that honors and pleases our God is through believing in Jesus Christ. We read in Romans chapter 14 that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So a good work must proceed from faith. And secondly, a good work also must be to the glory of God. It must be to the glory of God. And then, of course, we assume that this is something in accord with God's commands, and that's what we normally think of when we think of good works. But they must proceed from faith, and they must be unto the glory of God. Works may be uh, the right thing. A man may live his whole life, right, and, and not break this or that commandment. But if he makes that his boast, if he boasts in his own obedience or conformity to an outward command, if he trusts in that, if he is uh, trusting in that unto his own glory, then that is indeed sinful. We are called to do things for the glory of God and to have to be shaped by the worldview and that uh, the conviction of reality that we are to live on this earth for the glory of God, not for the glory of ourselves. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So a good work must proceed from faith. It must be done to the, to the glory of God, and it must be done in accord with his word. And then the catechism reminds us that in addition to that, just a bit of a warning, that you cannot base your opinion of what is right and wrong upon uh, the conventions of society or the opinions of men. We read in Psalm 119, Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation." 
I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. Psalm 119 is really this this massive reflection on the power of the word of God and conforming ourselves to the word of God. The Christian life in many ways can be summarized as the struggle to take God at his word. That's really one of the main issues that confronts us as Christians. The struggle to take God at his word. Each and every day, we are confronted with a challenge. Are you going to take God at his word? Are you going to believe him? Are you going to trust in him and believe what he has said is right and wrong? Or are you going to follow the conventions of society and the opinions of men? There's this, uh, this interesting phrase that has come into use in recent years to being on the wrong side of history. You know, most of the time that has to do with uh, trying to shirk traditional morality. We're, we're moving beyond these things now. We have, a, we have new opinions on the nature of marriage and what marriage can be. We have new, um, we have new opinions and conventions around what a, a normal family life looks like. And for anyone who's trying to sort of hold the line on these issues, they will find out one day that they are on the wrong side of history. And of course, many people in the evangelical church in America are struggling to hold the line because they feel the pressure of the culture around them. And it indeed is a temptation and a pressure to conform ourselves to the opinions of men. To conform ourselves to these conventions which become so normal around us as the world runs after all of these things. But the Christian life is about struggling to take God at his word. And so we remind ourselves of that with places like Psalm 119. That God's commandment makes us wiser than our enemies. So those are good works. And good works are going to be part and parcel to the Christian life of true conversion. True conversion involves two things, essentially two things, putting off the old man and putting on the new. So we turn then to Colossians 3 in the second half of that passage that we read. We are called to put off the old man. The the first word in verse 5, put to death, put to death, kill, kill. So we already have this very strong language called to kill or eliminate something from our lives. And that is basically the life that is characteristic of someone who is not in Christ. Put to death the markings of a life of someone who is not in Jesus Christ. For you are in Christ. You have a life that is heavenly. You have been made a citizen of heaven. So do not live like a citizen of the old world's order. So John Owen famously uh, is reflecting on this necessity to kill sin. And he says, be killing sin. Make it your priority every day. We need to struggle against it all our lives, as our catechism says. Always be doing it as long as you are alive in this world. Don't take even one day off from it. Always remember, be killing sin or your sin will be killing you. Take a day off from that battle and we understand and know that there's a, a creeping 
into our lives of sin that's always wanting to, to take more of a hold on us. Uh, we understand, of course, that in Christ and by the power of the cross, sin does not have dominion over us. But here's the way you need to think about it. Sin does not have jurisdiction. Sin does not have dominion over you. But that does not mean that sin is completely dead in you. There remains in us this, this power, this principle that's calling us back, that's trying to uh, make us commit evil acts all of the time. There's a, there's a battlefield for the human heart that goes on inside of each of us. That God claiming what is his own in Christ and by the power of the Spirit and Satan and all of his forces trying to prevent the people of God from living in accord with what they have been made to be in Christ. So we should be reminded that when Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, put to death what is earthly in you, we need to understand the power that enables us to do that. And the only power that we have to kill sin in our lives is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can put to death the old man in us. And so God gives us many things to help us on the way of putting these things to death. He's given us prayer. He's given us his word. He's given us the preaching of his word. He's given us the church and the fellowship and the communion of saints, the means of grace, the sacraments. He's given us our Christian brothers and sisters around us who are to keep us accountable and uh, to live the life of seeking Christ along with us. The temptation is that we uh, are always wanting to make these things that which holds the power, right? If you go and read your Bible in the morning and you check that box off of your list and you say, well, that's what actually contains the power to kill sin in my life or to put off the old man. And that causes us to trust in the things that we do. And, and the Christian life is always about uh, reminding us that we are to not trust in the things that we are doing. We are to trust that God is doing something in all of those things in us. He does it through them in us, right? God is, is the fountain of the power that we live in the Christian life. You think of something very simple like a, a lamp in your house. There's a, there's a light bulb, there's all of the, the circuitry, the wiring that goes through from the light bulb down the lamp, and then there's the, the plug into the wall and the socket. What causes that light bulb ultimately to turn on is the electricity. There's power and all other kinds of things traveling through all of those instruments. And you think of that like the power of God. And uh, the light bulb, the wiring, the socket, that's the prayer, the meditation, the church, the preaching of the word, all of those things. We remind ourselves that apart, Jesus says in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so this is something that is to be central to our lives, but we remember that God calls us to it. The only way that we can do it is by the power of uh, Christ in the Holy Spirit. As we read in our catechism, uh, as, the God, as God's grace works in us through the gospel, we are filled with a heartfelt sorrow over our sin. That's something that's tr involved in true conversion. A heartfelt sorrow over our sin. Someone who feels no sorrow over their sin is someone who has not felt in any sense the seriousness of it, the offense of it. When the Holy Spirit 
works on a dead heart and regenerates that soul to life, there will be, in varying degrees, sure, but there will be some sense of sorrow over our sin. To live a life in Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit, there should always be a sense that as we sin, as we struggle with sin, we are offending our Heavenly Father. We are bringing great sorrow upon Him. We're causing discord in our, in our covenantal relationship with God and putting stress and tension on that relationship with our Heavenly Father. We, of course, don't cease to be His children, but putting tension upon that relationship. Very similar to the way that we think about earthly fathers. A good father who loves his child uh, will not disown that child when that child sins. But nevertheless, there is a, there's, there's a disappointment. There's a, there's a distance that's created between parent and child in disobedience and in rebellion. And, of course, the father grieves over such things. And so true conversion contains in it a sorrow over sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says that there is a, a, a godly grief and a worldly grief. And what he basically says is that godly grief lead, will always lead to repentance. And that's really the, the doctrine of true conversion and sorrow over sin. Those who have a godly grief over their sin will be moved to repentance will be moved to a shame that they have with their sin. So Paul says in verse 9 of chapter 7 in 2 Corinthians, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief leads, uh, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief is that sorrow over sin. Then what about the evidence that sin has been mortified in our lives? The evidence that we are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of the old man. Essentially, what Paul says in Colossians 3 is that our bodies, the the bodies that God has given to us, Our bodies will be used for good works and righteousness rather than rebellion and sin and debauchery and immorality. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. I'll go to my uh, beloved New American Standard version for this verse because I think it captures it well. Therefore... Consider the members of your earthly body, right? the parts of your body, your arms, your legs. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. You look at your life. The question ought to be, what do you use your energy, strength, resources, and time to do? The old life, life apart from Christ, life without the Spirit, is characterized by what? Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed. In other words, Paul is saying, one who uses his time, his energy, his strength, 
his resources for all of these things is someone who has probably not experienced true conversion. Children of God can commit grievous sins and fall into serious error, absolutely. But when we look at patterns of their lives, we look at the kinds of things that they habitually do, what does one use his time, strength, energy, and resources to do? The evidence that the old man is being mortified is that your body, the members of your body, are used for righteousness and for good works. Romans 6, verse 13. Do not go on presenting the members of your body uh, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. In other words... God has given us these physical bodies to do good works for his kingdom, for others, and for his glory. Colossians 3, verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. So this is, this is his, the way that he brings his argument is don't do sexual immorality, impurity, don't any of those things. But clothe yourselves with compassion. How do you know that someone is clothed with compassion? It's if they have works of compassion in their lives. The things that they do are marked by compassion. Clothe yourselves with compassion. Kindness. How do you know that someone is kind? If their life is marked by works of kindness. Gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So we are called to be filled with a sorrow over sin that causes us uh, to hate our sin, right? We we are to hate it, as the, the catechism says, hate it more and more, and to flee it. Really, one of the best illustrations for this, I think, is, is the idea of a, a, a strong, unpleasant scent. And you walk into a room, if there's a bad smell in that room, normally people are going to kind of notice it, and they're going to want to leave. They're going to want to leave. That's what the Spirit does to each of us in regards to sin. We, we, we come to this place in our lives where more and more, and this is a progressive thing, this is not, it's not objectively the same for everyone, so it can be tricky, but more and more God causes us to hate sin, that it becomes like a, a foul odor, and that when we are around it, we, we are offended by it, and we want to run, we want to flee from it, we hate it more and more, and we run from it. That's what God's grace does to us in regards to our sin. And so the power to do all of this rests in God, and yet, in some mysterious way, God calls us to do it. Right? Paul says, by the power of the Spirit, you put to death what is earthly in you. You uh, eliminate all of these things from your life. And so God calls us to carry out this commandment, understanding that he has the power to do it. And so we ought to think of our place in the Christian life, in sanctification, as being wholly passive in one sense. We possess no power to do good works other than by God and by his grace. So we're wholly passive in one sense and wholly active in another These good works are actually carried out in our bodies. 
to put to death what is earthly in you. Be about that work each and every day, killing your sin, killing the old man, putting off the old man, putting on the new. The new man is marked by the works of and the fruit of the Spirit. So that's the second part of true conversion. First is the putting off of the old man. The second is the quickening of the new man, living to God, living to God. This is really the, the Heidelberg Catechism. Now, you've all forgiven me of this, but I... I come to you as a Presbyterian, and uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith oftentimes is less experiential, it's very precise uh, in terms of its, its theological categories, its precision, it, it, it's, it's a wonderful document in that sense. But one of, the, one of the reasons that you really love and treasure the Heidelberg Catechism is because it is so sensitive to who we are as, as whole persons. We have mind, uh, body, and soul. We have hearts that are filled with, with emotions. And uh, this Lord's Day is particularly indicative of that, that. That true conversion is you have a sorrow over your sin and a hatred of your sin on the one end. And then you also, in true conversion, there is joy and delight in God and in serving Him. Right? In other words... The Spirit causes any of us to have life in Christ. It's going to have, accompanied with that, some measure of joy in Christ, which if you're filled with sorrow over your sin and you see your Savior, the one who can save you from your sin, how would you not be filled with joy? Right? How, how, would, you, how would you not be filled with joy and gratitude? So there's a joy and there's also a, a delight. Right? We looked at this morning... Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy. Colossians 1, in the same letter we're looking at tonight, Paul says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. God desires that his people would be filled with joy, true joy in him. 1 Peter 1, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You do not see Christ, but by faith you behold him and by faith you love him. And because you love him by faith, you are filled with joy. The Christian life largely is to be about living with joy in Christ. Not only is there a joy, but there uh, becomes a delight. Someone who has been given life in Christ, heavenly life, the power of the Spirit, regeneration, someone will have not only joy, but they will delight in living according to God's commands. Again, another thing that is uh, experienced in varying degrees, but is in some degree experienced by all who know the Lord Jesus Christ. Return to Psalm 119, uh, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119 also brings different aspects of human experience um, into the description of the goodness of God's word. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. There's a, no, no earthly experience, in my opinion anyways, almost no earthly experience like tasting honey 
It is, it's a, the, the naturally just the sweetest thing out there that nature gives to us. It hits your mouth, it hits your tongue. You say, wow, that is sweet, right? And Psalm 119, verse 103, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Also, earlier in Psalm 119, listen to this verse, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. I don't think... I don't think that's just an expression, right? The, the knowledge that we have, and Colossians 3 talks about that too, we're, we're renewed. The renewal that we experience comes about through knowledge. We learn about God's word. God's spirit causes that knowledge to sink down deep into our hearts. It produces a life that is marked by that knowledge. Right? I don't think Psalm 119 verse 72 is just an expression that, that oh, that, you know, it's not really true that God's law and his word is more valuable than thousands of gold and silver pieces. No, it is. It actually is more valuable than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. In 1 John 5, verse 3, This is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Right? Now, we're not perfect in any of these things, but to know God, to know Christ, brings with it a delight a delight in his commands. And then, finally, just as we close, the, the aim. So if we have a joy in Christ, if a, we have a delight in his commandments, the aim that we are to have is to be pleasing. Right? That's, that's ultimately what our life is to be marked by. What a difference it would make if we, everything that comes into your life, every decision that you make, what you're doing, what you're thinking about doing, if you ask yourself, will this be pleasing to Christ and to my Heavenly Father. 2 Corinthians 5, once again. Whether we are at home or away, Paul says, we make it our aim to please Him. No matter where we are, no matter what circumstances are attending to any decision that we make, we make it our aim to be pleasing to our Heavenly Father. We make it our aim to be pleasing to our Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to where he goes after that. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. What was marked in Paul's mind or what marked Paul's life was in his mind he kept this truth before him that he, there will be an accounting of his life that he lived in Jesus Christ. He knew that day was coming. We all know that that day is coming. We will answer for the things that we have done. We will answer to our God and our King for the time that he gave us, for the resources that he afforded to us, for the energy that he gifted us with. And uh, we will account for all of that. And there will be, in some sense, a reckoning, even for the people of God, even though we know that on Judgment Day, our only refuge will be in Christ. But Paul says, live in such a way that everything you do, you're asking yourself, is this pleasing to Christ? Is this pleasing to my Heavenly Father? And live that way because you know that we will find out one day how much we've done that is pleasing to Him. And there will be an accounting and a reckoning of all of those things. And so, uh, Lord's Day 33 weaves all of these things together, not to scare us necessarily, but to affirm for us that true conversion 
is attended by these things. We are, we are to be sorrowful over our sin. We are to ask ourselves, am I filled with sorrow over our sin? Am I fleeing it? And if you feel like uh, there isn't much of that in your life, let this passage be an encouragement to you to engage in that battle of each and every day mortifying the old man, killing your sin. You kill your sin or your sin will be killing you. And then, uh, are you filled with a joy in your Savior, a joy in knowing your Heavenly Father? And does it cause you to delight in His commands? Does it cause you to delight in the things that He gives to you? That to live within the boundaries that He has established for us is not slavery, it's, it's freedom. It's freedom to serve our God. And then allow that to ask yourself in each and every circumstance, is what I am doing, is what I am about to do, are the decisions of my life, uh, will all of this be pleasing to my God and pleasing to my Lord? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you have given us this word uh, and you have assured us of your love and grace as you have poured it out upon us in Jesus Christ. We look to him and we trust in him, and yet we know that... um, The life that you call us to live in Christ is one that's marked by all of these things. We thank you and we praise you for your word, for the Lord's day, for your church, the means of grace. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.